Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hi everyone, I'm Michael Hoke, and this is the Yale University Press Podcast. Since the beginning of human existence, we've always been captivated by solar eclipses. Whether feared as portents of doom or celebrated in drug-fueled raves, solar eclipses hold a special place in the pantheon of celestial events. On August 21st of this year, and then again in 2024, a large swath of the United States will be treated to a total solar eclipse. My guest today, Anthony Avini, is here to tell us about eclipses, the science, the culture around them, the mythology, and hopefully he'll have some tips for us on the best way to watch the upcoming ones. Anthony is an astronomer and anthropologist, as well as an award-winning author of numerous books, including his latest, In the Shadow of the Moon, The Science, Magic, and Mystery of Solar Eclipses. Anthony, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Michael. Delighted to be here. So let's start uh, with a little bit about you. Um, one of the things uh, that you talk about in the book, and, and I think where the title is derived from, is this idea of spending t- time. Pe- there are people who measure the amount of time they've spent in the shadow of the moon, right? Well, of course, those are the Western astronomers, and um, the king of all participants is my colleague Jay Pasikoff, astronomer at Williams College, who holds the record. <laughs> Uh, and he's uh, been an avid eclipse chaser for years. And eclipse chasers are, I think, somewhat like uh, uh, storm chasers. And now, of course, we have iceberg chasers up in uh, Canada. Uh, they make it a habit of going after every eclipse. And uh, Jay does it with great seriousness. He's an astronomer who makes measurements mm-hmm. on eclipses. But it's a popular kind of uh, uh, sport, if you will, for many people who are not trained in astronomy. Mm-hmm. And they just want to be there in the shadow because it's awe-inspiring. And, uh, and I think the word I've heard used, uh, it was used more often in the last century than now, is, is the term uh, uh, sublime. Uh, sublime, and the idea of being almost on the, on the, on the uh, narrow crag between, say, on the one side, the objective scientific way of viewing nature, and on the other side, uh, having a religious experience, and I think that's what this event is about. So how much time have you spent in the shadow? What's your, oh, what's your count? Oh, I am a mere uh, eight eclipse watcher. Uh, I'm eight for eight, however, mm-hmm. and I had the pleasure of uh, seeing two total eclipses in the same place in Nova Scotia, the town of Antigonish, Nova Scotia, in 70 and 72, where two eclipse paths cross, and the same thing will happen in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the forthcoming eclipse on August the 21st of this year, total running from uh, Oregon all the way to South Carolina, that'll be the first transcontinental eclipse in uh, 99 years. Hmm. But seven years later, interestingly enough, we have another one that will run from West Texas all the way up the Ohio River Valley to um, uh, through our local Adirondack Mountains here. Uh, that those tracks cross in Carbondale, Illinois. Hmm. So if you want to have the ultimate experience of seeing two eclipses in one place in a short period of time, you've got to go to Carbondale. <laughs> I would uh, mention here in passing that Jerusalem hasn't had a total eclipse in over 1,100 years. Interesting. So are there, are there places that are more prone to them, I guess? <laughs> The odds are, if you stand in one place all your life, you won't get to see one. Uh, On an average of 400 years, you might uh, find an eclipse track passing a given location. Uh But as we know, and as I I talk about the Babylonians Mm -hmm. figuring out the the rhythmic beat between the sun and the moon, uh, that that leads us to decipher when and where you'll see eclipses, uh, you can figure out where to go. And of course, now we have a NASA website that tells people exactly where they can go, 
uh, years and years in advance mm-hmm. uh, to see the eclipse. And this particular one is uh, it's not very wide. It's only about a 100-mile-wide band that runs across the country. But why there is going to be so much hype about this, Michael, is that uh, it's within a good day's drive from almost anywhere in the United States. So hmm. this is something we have not seen. The last eclipse to touch down, even touch down on the U.S. mainland, northwest Montana, 1979. So very special day. And for those in the U.S. who want to watch it, is it do you do you have to be in that narrow band to see any of it, or will there be a, a wider group of people that can maybe see part of it? Right, there will be, uh, but the only way you'll get you'll see totality, which mm-hmm. means darkness in the daytime, mm-hmm. the uh, fail, uh, the the pale light of the corona. Uh, stars and planets coming out, uh, a, a twilight that goes all the way around the horizon, so many phenomena, uh, is that you've got to be within that uh, that zone. Now, we up here in New York State, you down there in New Haven, will see partial eclipse, maybe 50, 60 percent. I haven't looked exactly at what it is. Mm-hmm. You can look in the book. But I think the difference between seeing a partial and a total eclipse is like maybe a maybe going to the uh, Super Bowl the day day after the game as opposed <laughs> to being there on the day of the game. <laughs> so where will you be for this? Uh, for I'm not sure. I have an invitation from a former student who lives in Asheville, North Carolina, mm-hmm. uh, and that's about a 40-50 mile drive uh, from the eclipse zone, uh, which runs parallel to Interstate 40 down there. Mm-hmm. And I'm probably going to go there, uh, but uh, I'm, I'm advising anybody who's listening to this who has serious plans about going uh, that you had better go a day or two early because the, the traffic is. I think they're expecting my friends in North Carolina tell me West Carolina that up to 10 million people wow. are going to be in the area of Asheville, Boone, North Carolina, you know, uh, trying to get down there. So uh, uh, that's going to be a traffic jam to, to to reckon with. And you also talk about uh, there are some people who who take this very seriously, as you said. Um, there are people that uh, I believe charter flights so that they can stay uh, sort of <laughs> I get you can't go the same speed I guess as the eclipse but sort of keep prolong their their prolong experience. ecstasy as yeah. we call it yes we love to prolong all forms of our highs don't we <laughs> we'd love to stay on that ecstatic uh, track forever and of course if you hop on a jet plane and follow the track you can prolong it and there's one astronomer who's made it last up to 10 minutes <laughs> the longest you'll get if you stay in one place uh, is just a little under seven minutes, and that was a total eclipse that took place in 1991, July 11. Uh, I, I was in Baja, California, and mm-hmm. I was treated to some six minutes and 50 seconds of total darkness. It was it was sublime. Um, so, do you have a do you have a favorite um, eclipse that you've been to out of the eight? Is there is there one that was a, either particularly memorable for the eclipse itself or particularly memorable for the the uh, the surroundings and the company? Well, I have to say the 1991. It was affected both by the, uh, the the length of it and then the company that surrounded me. I was on a cruise ship lecturing mm-hmm. uh, to a group of people, and I'll never forget uh, uh, during totality. Uh, you know, you keep your shades on. You have to have those special glasses. Mm-hmm. You don't want to look at it, uh, the sun directly, or even through uh, exposed old film. Right. Uh, but I do remember uh, I gave lectures on the science of eclipses and exactly when it was going to be total, and people were there documenting things with their telescopes. 
my advice to people is don't document, just look. Forget about <laughs> the selfie, just look. Uh-huh. And I do remember a young woman coming up to me after the eclipse, and uh, she had tears in her eyes, she had tears running down her face, and she said to me, you know, Professor, you may have told us all about the uh, science of eclipses, she said, but to me it was a miracle. Hmm. And that's really what interests me as a person having been trained in astronomy, astrophysics, but you could say having become an anthropologist, Mm -hmm. uh, are the questions about people uh, who watch eclipses and how people react to eclipses. And that's really why I did the book with Yale. There hasn't really been anything written uh, very much about people's reactions. I've talked about animal reactions and people reactions. Mm -hmm. I think one of the unfortunate things about our Western scientific outlook Uh, is that we tend to look at all other ways of understanding the natural world as being kind of like superstitious. Mm -hmm. Uh, For example, there are some wonderful stories about this that that maybe can bring home the point. We have reports from colonial Peru uh, shortly after the conquest about people who beat their dogs. Now, I know we have animal activists maybe blogging here, and I, I hope we don't get too upset about it, but they would beat their dogs to make them howl Hmm. Uh, at the eclipse, uh, while other people would pound on drums. Okay. Uh, and the superstition, which comes down to us from the Spanish chroniclers, you know, these people who came over with uh, the explorers after Columbus to Catholicize the natives, who say that these people are, have silly superstitions about demons eating the sun. Well, it's interesting, if you follow up that story, which I have done in the historical record, it turns out that people are making noise to get the sun's attention. Because they say that the moon, who rules the night, the moon is telling lies to the sun (laughs) about how people behave at night and how they commit sins. In fact, can't you see him there in that crescent sun? That's the sun's ear. And the moon is whispering into his ear, telling him lies. (laughs) So they say that we are making all this noise to get the sun's attention to tell him that the moon is telling lies about people. (laughs) But what's the moral of the story here? This is not superstition. Mm -hmm. The eclipse is an occasion to provoke a discussion about lying. (laughs) And I think, you know, if we want to relate that to the current environment, wouldn't it be a nice idea to have a discourse about lying and how (laughs) lying is not a good thing? So it isn't superstition Mm -hmm. at all. And there are other stories like this that come from the ancient Maya, for example. One uh, anthropologist was interviewing his Maya uh, people during an eclipse, and and the the, uh, respondent a native person, and this is in contemporary Yucatan, not more than 20 years ago, and mm-hmm. they asked the uh, anthropologist, do you people bite each other the way the moon is biting the sun? And the anthropologist said, well, of course not. We don't bite each other. Why? Do you people bite each other? And the, and the, the Maya man says, no, well, we don't now, but we used to. <laughs> we used to in those days. And he was referring to uh, myths about cannibalism uh-huh. in the past. Uh, and and uh, then the discussion went on. Uh, And the moral of the story was that the eclipse was intended to provoke a discussion about bad behavior. The uh, respondent asked the anthropologist, don't your people, you people bite each other? Uh, You people who live in America, uh, which they think is at the other end of space and time, because the farther away you go in space, the farther you go back in time. Uh, And uh, the the anthropologist says, no, we don't. Uh, And the, the discussion ensued, and it turns out that the Maya believe that anything that's far away in space, like Mm -hmm. America to the Maya, would be far away in time. And so what we're doing here is reflecting on our past behavior and how we can help 
uh, to bring about a balance in the universe. And that's what the discourse about biting the sun is. It isn't about some awful dragon who's eating the sun. And so we have to understand people here and the anthropologist question. So that's my mission. So, I mean, that brings up a good point um, about sort of the beliefs of what solar eclipses were. Uh, when did we first sort of figure out exactly what an eclipse was? Well, I think the Babylonians helped us out. Uh-huh. Uh, although the Maya did the same thing, they figured out the rhythmic beat uh, of eclipses, which is a, what I would call a 6-5 beat. Uh, and uh, it comes from the fact that you can have eclipses take place only uh, at six-month or sometimes five-month intervals. Hmm. And I won't bore you with all the details of the <laughs> physics of it, but I talk <laughs> about it in my book. And the um, Babylonians figured out a particular 6-5 rhythm that went something like this. It was 6-6-6-6-6-5, In other words, a half a dozen sixes and a five-month huh. intervals. Um, and uh, sometimes seven of them and sometimes five of them. But there is a rhythm that you get if you keep enough historical records and watch enough eclipses, and the Babylonians did this, and so did the Maya. Uh, you can work out a pattern where you can get, of course, the more observations you get and the more records you get, the better you can pinpoint nature. Mm -hmm. So they figured that out. Now, of course, in the Western world, uh, our whole notion about orbits and shadows really doesn't begin until well into the Renaissance. And, of course, we have the great founding fathers, if you will, of astronomy, like Galileo and Kepler and, uh, and Newton and um, uh, uh, Edmund Halley, mm -hmm. of cometary fame, also played a role, uh, who began to work out this idea of orbits and shadows. And then the precision uh, became greater and greater. But I think the real change happens, uh, the whole scientific mindset, the, the, the separation, if you will, of mind and matter, doesn't really happen until you get well into the French Enlightenment where you begin to think of the universe as a thing apart, uh, a, a thing quite separate from us, not a living thing. And I think we are unique, we in the Western world, since the French Enlightenment, are unique in our belief that there's us and there's the universe. Mm -hmm. This is not the case in every other civilization of the world. For the Maya, for example, in whom I specialize, but also for other cultures, the universe is, is animate, it's alive, it's teeming with life, and we're a part of it. Uh, but notwithstanding, uh, there still was some pretty damn good science done by Maya people and Inca people and the people in ancient China as well, who did not take so much this materialistic view of the natural world. And how, I mean, not going into the details as you said, but um, if the Mayans were able to figure out this sort of, this rhythm is six months, five month intervals, how, how does that happen um, I mean, is this over the course of a very long period of time if, if eclipses aren't happening, you know, in the same spot every time? Well, Michael, it always has to be, and that's a great question. Of course, you can see partial eclipses up to a certain degree of partiality. Mm -hmm. But you do have to have a knowledge of the record. Uh, and the Maya, uh, and I'm often asked the question, well, how come the Maya didn't do science the way we do? For the Maya, it was really religion that was driving them. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was these, these uh, religious priests who believed that the gods were their ancestors, uh, who sought to get as accurate a record of when eclipses occurred and where. We have some evidence that several eclipses occurred in a 100-year in a period in Yucatan in the 2nd, 3rd century A.D. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, they were the ones who were driven uh, to keep balance in the universe by offering the proper 
uh, a tribute to the gods. They had a kind of a reciprocal arrangement whereby we would offer something to the gods, and in return they would give us uh, a fruitful crop. They would uh, make the human female fertile as well as the maize plant. Mm-hmm. A totally different kind of, mi- kind of mindset. But what fascinates me as a person interested in both astronomy and anthropology is how people can be driven uh, to create mathematics and create precise knowledge without having this Western view of the universe being a thing apart. Mm-hmm. To me, that, uh, that uh, is, is so, so fascinating. Um, so, you know, talking about some of this, the, this cultural, uh, historical cultural things, uh, Stonehenge also had a role to play in, in solar eclipses, right? Well, it's, it's still debatable that they did. I believe there is some uh, truth to the theories espoused that there are astronomical alignments at Stonehenge, particularly those relating to the sun and the moon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and once you begin charting full moons, in other words, where the full moon is going to rise or set, I think it's going to dawn on you that these eclipses occur in cycles, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you can relate these to the position of the moon on the horizon. Now, of course, the problem with Stonehenge is that we're using what I call the, I like to call the unwritten record. We don't have a historical record. Uh, we don't have hieroglyphs. We don't have manuscripts. All we have are standing stones, and we must look at the alignments between and among the stones and, and features in the landscape, if you will, uh, which means you've got to take a statistical approach uh, to it. Uh, but I do think that the people that long ago uh, were paying attention mm-hmm. to the course of the sun and the moon. We have to remember how much... Uh, uh, our dark skies have been taken away, and right. people will, will not imagine that people could have been that attuned to the sky. But, of course, we have electrification, mm-hmm. thanks to Thomas Edison, you know, who, who threw the switch on a, on a generator down on Lower Broadway in 1880, 82, uh, and, and lit up the Great White Way. And ever since then, you know, we've lost contact mm-hmm. uh, with the dark sky. And I might say, as I'm talking to you now, we're looking out a window here, we've lost contact with nature. The temperature outside doesn't matter. Whether it's raining or not mm-hmm. doesn't matter. Uh, and so we begin to project ourselves onto other people and say, well, why would they pay attention to this? <laughs> why would they pay attention to that? If you lived in the landscape, uh, whether it be in, uh, on the plains of Salisbury in southern England or in the jungles of Yucatan or in the high Andes, you would be paying very close attention to everything that happened around you. And that means the, the plant life, the animal life, and, of course, the sky life. Mm-hmm. Uh, it sort of reminds me of you know the the idea of constellations, and we look at them and say that doesn't look like a bear or anything. But you know, t- f- to a, a long time ago, when you were more in tune with that sort of thing, and the the sky was darker, and maybe there were less you know forms of entertainment, uh, it probably lo- was much more significant. Well, also you know, uh, like our our iPhone uh, or iPad or my computer screen here. That was the template. I mean, the sky was the template where you would sketch out the stories of humanity, and you'd look up at uh, a certain constellation that appeared in the springtime, and you'd make an object of fertility out of it, mm-hmm. uh, if that's when the planting season occurred. Uh, and then that would be the storyboard, and you'd be looking at that and telling your kids, uh, maybe sitting around a fire, telling your kids the story about how the gods come down to earth, and they make the earth, uh, the landscape fertile, and so on. Uh, or about stories of warriors and uh, migrations and other things. Uh, and we have to remember that, that that was the storyboard. 
I think it's interesting to, to me, let's tell you another story since we're storytelling here, <laughs> how even since um, America has been America, we've lost contact with this awe and wonder. You know, President John Quincy Adams, sixth president of the United States, mm-hmm. lost an election to the man whose face is still on the $20 bill. Interestingly enough, he saw an eclipse. He witnessed the eclipse of 1846, and he, uh, he tweeted out a sonnet, if I may use the analogy. <laughs> uh, he was so overcome with awe at the eclipse that he wrote a 14-line sonnet. Um, and then he went to Congress, uh, and he pled with them to, uh, having been fascinated by this wonder of nature and predicting eclipses, uh, he pled with them uh, to help us become intellectually and scientifically independent from Europe. Hmm. Thomas Jefferson, who preceded him by three, third president, actually observed two total eclipses. Well, he got clouded out of one. But the second one, he actually made timings of the eclipse with his telescope. Can you imagine a president standing on the lawn of the White House (laughs) timing uh, the occurrence of the eclipse when it started and when it ended? Uh, And then uh, he wrote a letter to David Rittenhouse, astronomer in Philadelphia, uh, complaining that we don't have very accurate clocks. We don't have accurate scientific in- instrumentation. Uh, and uh, both he and Adams, the third and sixth president of the United States, I think were probably the most profound supporter of uh, the conduct of science and science education and uh, in, their, in, in the entire list of presidents. And I kind of like to tell that story today, uh, given the, the danger that we're in of losing uh, government support of the sciences, you know, mm-hmm. NEH and, uh, and so on, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, the National Science Foundation. Here were two presidents who wrote poetry and practiced <laughs> science uh, and wanted us to be at the forefront of scientific knowledge. Quite a difference. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is, it's It's funny to think about, but yeah, I mean, in, yeah, we've come a, a long ways in some fields and, you know, we've sort of forgotten about others maybe. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to be selling books for political reasons of being a scientist, but <laughs> I couldn't resist telling the stories about Jefferson and yeah. uh, uh, Quincy Adams. We don't know him very well, but he was uh, a very articulate man and uh, very, very, very pro. He was a real America firster, I would say, <laughs> trying to keep us uh, ahead of Europe and not behind. Mm-hmm. Well, to switch gears back to the <laughs> to the science of it, <laughs> we got into politics. Yeah, a bit well, that's that's the way it goes these days, I think. Um, what are uh, what are some experiments uh, that can maybe only be done during solar eclipses for for scientists out there who are doing who are watching these? Well, there aren't as many as there used to be. Uh-huh. There was a famous experiment conducted uh, all over a century ago, about a century ago, we're practically celebrating the centennial of it, and that was the confirmation of Einstein's theory of relativity mm-hmm. by the bending of light by stars, uh, by the, uh, by the uh, uh, stars in the background of the eclipse sun, uh, which could be seen uh, um, uh, during that eclipse. Uh, we know when the corona was being explored, the beginning of the century and even late last century, 19th century, I should say, I'll say the early 20th and late 19th century, uh, one wanted to understand how the temperature of the corona was so high um, and what were those strange emission lines in the corona. And it was only during eclipses that you could see uh, these phenomena. Now, most astronomers uh, will agree that uh, eclipses now, of course, we can fabricate them uh, in a telescope, 
and we can make them happen all the time from, from the space telescopes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I agree with my colleague Jay Pasikoff and other astronomers who still can make sound ground observations relating to the temperature of the corona. I mean, it's a much more stable situation that you have on the ground. Mm-hmm. But there's still no doubt, and I think Jay would probably admit, that the heyday of ground-based eclipse observation has long passed. Mm-hmm. I think it was very exciting in the 1920s when people first, first started doing observations from uh, airplanes and, and uh, dirigibles, uh, and there are some harrowing experiments that were conducted. I can imagine imagine an astronomer strapped to the, the top of a dirigible <laughs> to an iron bar uh, with a camera and the wind blowing and trying to, to uh, uh, take uh, pictures and spectra and photographs of, uh, of the corona during an eclipse. I mean, I am... Uh, maybe I'll climb up to the dome of the observatory, but I'm not going to be flying up in a, <laughs> on a, on a, on a, in a balloon trying to get these pictures. There's still some that can be done. Yeah. But I think for me, eclipses are things to marvel at. I mm-hmm. think for me, the most important thing about seeing an eclipse is appreciating uh, uh, a wonderful show that nature puts on for us. It puts us into a very different kind of mood. And even though, I, I mean, I've even heard astronomers say that though they fully understand what they're seeing when they're doing all this eclipse documentation, nonetheless, there still is this feeling of almost beginning with fear and then and then approaching awe at seeing something sublime. And there are marvelous descriptions of the feelings that people have when they watched eclipses. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like this is something to maybe just uh, be appreciated and not necessarily, uh, you know, you don't have to go out and measure it. You could just go watch it and appreciate, you know, this. this yeah, sort of well, you power. know, the the astronomer Walter De La Rue, the last 19th century astronomer who went to a lot of eclipses and eclipse expeditions, uh, wrote uh, a little description afterward where he said, uh, "Oh, I was so busy, and I can't not quoting this, but there's a quote in my book. Mm-hmm. So busy uh, regulating the photographic plates and turning the all the switches to get everything to work." He said, "But then." For a moment, I just happened to glance away from the telescope, and I looked up at the sun, and I, I beheld the most beautiful view I've ever seen of the horizon and the stars and stars coming out. And he said, and I vowed that if I ever get the opportunity to witness another eclipse, I will do it only as a gazer, <laughs> only as a gazer. Uh-huh. Uh, he never did get that opportunity, uh, but he wishes he had. And so my advice to people who are going to cart their equipment around and do selfies and everything is the you know just put your hands down and put your head up <laughs> and, and and gaze at it. Um, so, for the upcoming one or the upcoming two rather, um, any tips other than maybe leave leave your cameras and stuff at home and just enjoy. Probably don't stare at the sun is a good tip. Maybe that one's common well. If sense. you're gonna go to Carbondale, you better book a motel <laughs> in the next couple of years. My my pals who were going out to Oregon, the best shot at it, weather-wise, and of course that's just very, very highly subject to weather, mm-hmm. uh, is to uh, make a reservation early and, and then whatever you do, get there early or get close enough to the track early so that you just have, just have a short drive. Uh, but the problem, of course, always is weather. Now, this track in the east, for Easterners, you know, it'll be total in Nashville, total in Columbia, South Carolina, total in Charleston. So if you know your geography, you can sketch a line, uh, you know, across there. Mm -hmm. But, you know, what if it's cloudy in Nashville? What if it's cloudy in, um, you know, in Charleston? You're really taking a chance. Right. And I I recall a colleague telling me 
not quite remembering when it was. It might have been 2012. It was an eclipse in Siberia, 50 seconds of totality, so a very thin shadow. Uh, and he remarked to me that he'd went all, gone all the way to Siberia, and it was cloudy. <laughs> and, of course, it gets dark. It certainly gets dark, but you don't get right. to see the corona and the planets and all of that. So it's a roll of the dice. It's a gamble. Uh, plan well, plan ahead. Mm-hmm. Best shot is out uh, out west mm-hmm. uh, in the vicinity of uh, Wyoming. You know, uh, Casper, Wyoming is total. Uh, the uh, east of the Cascades, probably better than west of the Cascades. But you're taking a chance when you're an eclipse chaser, uh, <laughs> just like when you're a storm chaser, right. I guess. I, I heard a couple of storm chasers actually killed when their cars ran into each other mm-hmm. not so long ago. Less chance of that, but the uh, best tip, of course, is t- don't look at the sun directly <laughs> right. because the ophthalmology business always goes up after <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, the ophthalmologist may not have that advice, but for the rest of us, right, don't, lo- don't look at the sun. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, well, the book is In the Shadow of the Moon, The Science, Magic, and Mystery of Solar Eclipses. Uh, Anthony, thanks for coming on today. Delighted, and I'm glad to work with the Yale folks. Uh, New Haven's my hometown, incidentally, so say hello to everybody. (laughs) All right, great. Uh, That does it for this episode of the Yale University Press podcast. Thank you for listening, and please check out YaleBooks.com to keep up with this podcast, as well as the latest from our blog and our authors. For more episodes, please subscribe on iTunes or find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite app.